Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Tonight we begin our new sermon series on the life of Elijah entitled, As the World Crashes Down. And I'd like to begin tonight on a rather somber note, that is by looking at Elijah's context, what the Germans would call the Sitzenleben. German is just so beautiful. Flows from the tongue. It's poetic, romantic. Sitzenleben means your place in life, his place in life. Uh, I think context is extremely important. When the Scripture gives you a context from which a prophet offers utterances, you really need to understand the place that he's coming from in order to grapple with the depth of his message. And so uh, context is, of course, critical biblically, but, uh, but extra biblically too, because context is really important for you. I mean, everybody who is hearing me tonight or attends this service is coming from a context, a very, very complicated context, right? Because you're a, maybe a single man and is in his 40s, and you're, you know, you're in middle management. You can't seem to get promoted, and under you, there's only teenagers, and they work on their cell phones all the time, and you can't get them to pay attention to the job, right? Or you're a teenager, and you resent the last illustration that I just gave. <laughs> and I don't realize the endless drama that you're dealing with via your cell phone, and you're trying to to, you know, um, pave a way for friendship, even though your friends are being terribly alienating and dramatic and terrible. And in truth, you would really like to move away, somewhere far away from all these people if you could. Or maybe you're a a mom, and you're a mom during the first week of school, right? You just endured the first week of school, and your kids are already signed up for three sports and two instruments, and one of them is playing the bassoon, and you don't know why, and you feel like being a hermit with... Or maybe you grew up in New York City and now you're at Grove City College for some reason and this little town feels a little too non-metropolitan for your tastes. Or perhaps you grew up Baptist, you're a Southern Baptist, and truth be told, you still consider yourself a Southern Baptist, and you're here tonight, and you think this Anglican pageantry is just a bit much. Uh, Or you're a Roman Catholic, and you look at all this Anglican pageantry, and you think, this Anglican pageantry is subpar, Uh, (laughs) right? But we're all coming from a context. Everybody here has a context that is dictating the terms of your interpretation and your action, at least much of the time. Well, some contexts, as you rightly know, are extremely dark. I mean, there are people tonight sitting here uh, who have had very, very dark thoughts in the last week, and you're struggling with something very serious because your marriage has gone awry and you don't know how to fix it, or you, you went to therapy and all of a sudden something got stirred up and it's way over your head and way beyond you and you're terrified. Uh, some people had just had an anxiety attack last week, or you're suffering terribly from depression, but everybody here has experienced, and maybe some tonight are, a very, very dark context. And I had a friend, who was a poet, by the way, who wrote about their dark con- context after a very uh, terrible and um, debilitating divorce. And this is what he wrote to me about context. I walk amidst companions who find any reason to leave my company. My parents, who never wanted a son, my wife, who never wanted an artist, my children, who don't remember my birthday, my managers, who misspell my name. I imbibe lithium and Xanax, listen to biased news and fuzzy facts. 
Above me is a changing climate, and beneath me are oily rivers. I carry bad tech, and I sit in bad churches. I'm a slave of internet lust and guilt spirals. Uh, a context of pain is halfway numbed by enough dopamine to help me forget that I walk within an empire of nightmares as far as the eye can see. Well, that's a very heavy thing to write, but Elijah's context is an empire of nightmares. He's within an empire of nightmares, built by the mud bricks of bad politics and bad religion. So I want to work through this passage tonight, and hopefully we'll all be built up and edified and sobered and leave here a little bit more liberated than how we came in. So let's talk about this uh, passage. We're going to begin with bad politics, and bad politics is represented by a really unholy alliance or an unholy marriage between Ahab and Jezebel. But this uh, begins in verse 29, so I invite you to take up and read, and let's see, let's see where we go. Verse 29, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this will sound a little bit like Lord of the Rings, a lot of names, a lot of places, you don't know who they are, let me clarify. Um, after King David, and many of you have heard of him, and King Solomon passed away, there was a civil war amongst the Jewish people, and the country split in half, and they renamed the country. The northern chunk was called Israel, the southern Judah. Israel had 10 of the 12 tribes, Judah had two of them. So Israel in the north, that's where Elijah's ministry takes place, in the northern kingdom that now has its own distinctive northern monarch, right? Well, Ahab's uh, father was a man named, named King Omri, who earlier in chapter 16, which was not in our reading, it was said of him, he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all the kings before him, right? Now, Omri was one of the most famous Jewish kings in the Middle East, at least from the iconography that we have from the time uh, and, the, and the writing. Uh, he was more famous than David, at least in the ancient world. Uh, in fact, the king of Moab was so impressed with Omri, he renamed Israel. He didn't call it Israel. He called it the house of Omri. And yet, there's blessed little about Omri in the Old Testament. Why? Because God doesn't care about politics. He's really not as interested in, in, in sort of political machinations or alliances, political alliances or military might. And Omri was all into those things. The only thing that the historiography of the Old Testament is interested in is obedience to Yahweh. And Omri wasn't obedient, so he's not really very much in the story. So he's really excised from the narrative, except that the narrative calls him a punk, but in Hebrew. Um, well, that was Ahab's family context. That was his formation. He was formed by the most wicked dynasty in Jewish history. Uh, his vile father trained up a child in the way that he shouldn't go, and as a result, his son did not depart from it. Uh, and what's worse, of course, is that Ahab outdoes his vile father. That's why it says in verse 31, and as if it had been a light thing, for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Now, a lot of names. Jeroboam, 
was the first king of the northern kingdom. So when Israel up north split from Judah down south, Jeroboam was the first king. Jeroboam was a very complicated individual because he kept monotheism. He kept Yahwism. He worshipped the one true God. At the same time, he was really interested in sort of a more inclusive Judaism. So that whole commandment about not building things that could possibly be worshipped as idols, he wasn't so big on that. And he decided to guard places of sacrifice. He would build two golden bulls reminiscent of what happened after the Exodus when Aaron builds a golden bull and things go south. Well, he resurrects, if you will, that kind of behavior, and he puts those bulls in place. And we call this syncretism, right? Syncretism is the, a blending of different religious streams to create kind of a new, more inclusive spiritual system. Well, this passage says if it had been a light thing for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, um, he did something worse. He married this woman named Jezebel, who introduced not just syncretism into the country, but outright paganism. So what started off as syncretism ends in paganism. And friends, when you compromise on things that are central and true, just a little bit, don't be surprised that if in 20 years you compromise a lot. This is just what happens. Um, so anyway, uh, Jezebel enters the picture. Who is Jezebel? Um, well, some of you know that uh, she was from the, uh, the, the empire of Phoenicia. Their capital city was Sidon. It was kind of a, a shore city, a beach city. And so she's a Jersey Shore kind of girl. Um, no kidding, if you ever saw that MTV program. Uh, she kind of fits the bill. Um, her name, Jezebel, has been debated, but most scholars think it literally means something like, where is the prince? Where is the prince? But the prince it's referring to is Baal. So it's Jezebel, right? In its original Phoenician pronunciation, Jezebel. Where is the prince? Well, what, who would name their kid that? Like, what is that, what is that about? Well... Christians and Jews were not the only ones with liturgy. The Phoenicians and the Canaanites had liturgy. And in one of the key parts of the liturgy, they would all scream out, the priestesses would scream out, uh, where is the prince? Referring to Baal because they thought they could conjure Baal up from the underworld with spells, including with that name. Uh, so that's why she, she was named after a pagan liturgy. Now, why would Ahab marry this foreign woman with, with pagan attachments? Was it because he fell in love? Uh, was it because they were a good match? Was it because she was gorgeous? Probably not. Princes in the ancient world got married for the sake of creating alliances. And right above Israel and Phoenicia, and off to the side slightly, you had another growing empire, the empire of Damascus. Frankly, everybody was terrified of Damascus. And so they thought a union between Israel and Phoenicia would defend them against a military onslaught that they, couldn't, um, that they couldn't prevent otherwise. Now, in the Old Testament, you may know that Jews were forbidden by God from marrying foreigners. And some people look back and say, that is racist. It is not. Um, it wasn't for race-oriented reasons, because you could, you could actually become a Jew within the Old Testament um, through the rite of circumcision and other things. Um, it wasn't because of that. It was because of foreign deities. So God was very concerned that intermarrying 
uh, would create not new races, but would create paganism because you would essentially, through marriage, adopt. People would end up adopting, just to be nice, all sorts of syncretistic practices that would eventually turn to outright paganism, which in fact happened. It happened to Solomon, it happened to his descendants, it happened year after year, time after time. Um, and so, uh, Jezebel represents that kind of pagan turn, that pagan turn. And so, that's the bad politics. And now for the bad religion. The bad religion is represented by yet another couple, not so much uh, um, Ahab and Jezebel, but the god and goddess that Ahab and Jezebel brought into the country. This is verse 31. And he, Ahab, went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. You may not know these names. Let me define the terms. Baal is the Canaanite god adopted by the Phoenicians, a Canaanite god of rain and fertility, particularly the fertility of crops, right? Asherah is the Canaanite goddess of sexual fertility, said to have given birth to 70 Canaanite gods. Sometimes you'll hear references to Asherah poles in the Old Testament. Somebody creates an Asherah pole. We don't exactly know what that is, but the best guess is that an Asherah pole is a, an, a tree redesigned by an artisan um, carved with the goddess's face to look like the tree of life, that which produces productivity. Um, and she was known, Asherah was known as the queen consort of Baal. They were a couple. They went together. And together, the idea was that if you worshiped them together, you could create uh, a flourishing a nation. Uh, but these are gods that in some ways represented the appetites of sensuality and sustenance. Worshiped together, you would be unstoppable. And they actually had a liturgy. I will not go into the very graphic details of that liturgy, but let's just say, in a rather PG way, that that liturgy began with sensuality for the people that were new, but eventually ended in blood, namely the sacrifice of one's own children that came from sensual unions. That's, by the way, how sin always is. Sin always lures you with something pleasurable that meets your appetite before it starts taking your blood away. Well, that was the ancient pagan cult uh, that ended in blood, and the Baal Asherah cult uh, defies the very bedrock of ethical Judaism. Why? Because it defies especially the first two commandments. The first commandments have no other gods before me. The second commandment, do not create little statues and worship them, thinking that they are your deliverers, right? And those commandments, those bedrock commandments were broken, broken by Ahab and Jezebel, and much of the nation followed suit. And then, friends, we shift. We shift to verse uh, 33. And what's interesting about this particular passage is that it's an additional bit, and scholars for years have scratched their heads as to why this was added, but there's actually a reason. So we'll read it to you. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And now the interesting um, part that I was referring to earlier. In his days, Heil of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of uh, Ibiram, his firstborn, and set up 
its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. What does this have to do with like Ahab and Jezebel? Well, it happens under Ahab's watch. Something happens here, and I'm going to use this odd term for it. It is an example of societal necromancy. You may know what necromancy is. It is witchcraft to raise the dead. Only now it's to raise what was a dead society, a dead city, namely Jericho. This is a hugely, hugely symbolic act. You may remember, because this text refers to him, Joshua. Who was Joshua? He was the successor of Moses. Remember, Moses leads the Jewish people out of slavery into the promised land. Well, right before they cross over the Jordan River into the promised land, Joshua, the successor, stands up to take that role and walks into the promised land, except the promised land is occupied and has lots of dangerous people there, lots of dangerous people. And so what happens is uh, they run into a city. That city is Jericho. It's very well fortified, ancient, respected city, the center of sorcery and paganism, and God says you're going to take it. You're going to walk around the city seven times, you're going to blow your trumpets, and those massive fortified walls are going to come, come tumbling down, which they in fact did, and then they laid waste the city. So what is the first thing on Ahab's agenda? Bring it back resurrect the city, a dark resurrection. Take what was the capital of paganism and sorcery, the very first town that was attacked after the exodus, and bring it back, restore it to its pagan glory. Now Joshua, 500 years prior, spoke a little prophecy into being. This comes from Joshua chapter 6, much earlier in the Old Testament. He said this odd thing, he did not predict that no one would rebuild Jericho, but he said, if you do, watch out. This is what Joshua says 500 years earlier. Cursed before the Lord, be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. And of course, under Ahab, this very thing occurs. The architect of Jericho 2.0 lost his sons in its construction. Now, they've actually done lots of excavations of Canaanite territory in the ancient world, and what they've discovered, temple after temple, is that under the foundation stones and under the gates, they find human remains. Not just because people died there and they left them there, but because people were sacrificed there to get the God's blessing on the city. And that may, in fact, be what occurred in this situation. And so we have bad politics coupled with bad religion. Bad politics represented by Ahab and Jezebel, bad religion represented by Baal and Asherah. Political might coupled with a sex cult. And what happens? Israel really never recovers. Never recovers from this dark legacy. And you may know that earlier in the Old Testament, the Jews were warned, the Jews that cried out for a king. Many of them were upset with a government from God that came from judges. They said, Lord, every other country in the world that we can think of, every other empire has a monarch. We have none. We want to be just like them. God warns them and says, if you want a king, they're going to abuse you, destroy you, ruin you, enslave you, and paganize you. And they said, that sounds great to us. We want a king. And so remember what F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says about sin. He says the punishment for sin is sin. Uh, and so they reap the, 
they reap the results of their own desire, where God is replaced as king, and instead Ahab uh, rules with an iron fist. Um, There's a warning here that if you replace God with anything at the level of God, or you think is at the level of God, if you replace ultimate authority, you will build an empire of nightmares. And that's true in your own personal life, as well as our society at large. But what I love about this passage, as dark and dismal as it is, and as clinically depressed as I've now made you, uh, it does not end there. It ends with this odd, fascinating, wonderful, sudden intrusion. Because this is what you'll learn about the God of the Bible the more you study the Bible. He doesn't leave you alone. He doesn't leave. He doesn't abandon. He doesn't... Uh, He is not like Pontius Pilate that just washes his hands of us. Instead, he is relentlessly pursuant. And so, this is verse 17, the beginning uh, of uh, of Elijah's appearances. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbet in Galilee, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. By the way, the name Elijah means Yahweh is my God. It's a defiant name within this culture. And he appears out of nowhere, literally nowhere. We don't even know where Tishba is, some rinky-dink town. But usually with the calling of prophets, there's a call narrative. There's God speaking to the prophet, calling the prophet, the prophet saying, not me, I'm not very good at it. And God saying, I don't care, you're still called. There's no call narrative here. He just appears. And I think his sudden introduction is very deliberate because at the point where all hope is lost, at the point where your emperors are creating hell on earth, God appears. And God gives a word to this unknown, humble man. And I say humble because Elijah carries no weapons, has no political power, and no societal influence, is a complete unknown, and God sends him armed with what? He sends him armed with a word. He's armed with a word. He's armed with a revelation. That's all he's got. He's got a revelation. He's got an idea that comes right from God, and he goes to the king and confronts Ahab and says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Now, remember, Elijah's a prophet in that northern kingdom of Israel, and he was now reminding Israel's king of Israel's higher power, who was in fact not the king, and not Baal, and not Asherah. This would have been seen as a seditious as well as a blasphemous claim within Ahab's empire because he has dedicated his empire to the new inclusive gods. And what does Elijah say to the king? It's not going to rain. No rain, no dew. Nothing from above, nothing from below, no water. What made Elijah say this? Why that? Why not something else? Why not, a, why not pestilence? Why not illness? Uh, some people say, well, the Holy Spirit just spoke to him, and he offered some words that the Holy Spirit gave him. Maybe, but if you read in an earlier portion of the Old Testament, say Deuteronomy 11, which is the republication of the Sinai law, Remember, the Sinai law is a conditional covenant under which we are no longer uh, under. Um, that was, I said under too much, but we're no longer under it. But back then they were. But this is Deuteronomy 11, part of the conditional covenant given to Israel. If you will indeed obey my commandments, God speaking, that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain 
for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. But take care, lest your hearts be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off of the good land that the Lord is giving you. So Elijah, right, is a man of God steeped in the Old Testament revelation. And now as a prophet of God, called by God, he is adjudicating Israel from established Scripture. He's saying now is the moment for your punishment. He's enacting that old uh, affirmed legislation from Deuteronomy. And it's a fascinating attack. No rain. That's an attack on both bad politics as well as bad religion. Bad politics, because kings control a lot of things, especially in the ancient world. Kings were pretty much all-powerful. Kings controlled who you worshipped. Kings controlled armies. Kings controlled public opinion. But they can't control the rain. So God shuts out the rain, showing his might over and above the king. It's also an attack on bad religion, because Baal and Asherah were gods of fertility, especially Baal is the God of rain, and now it's not raining, which shows his impotence and non-existence. And so what we see in this passage is not just darkness, but an intrusion, an intrusion of God to create chaos within that pagan system and to bring it to ruin. The Word of God intrudes. The Word of God breaks forth, and the Word of God eventually demolishes this evil machinery and these pretender gods. Ultimately, God wins. The revelation wins. And that's another word for us because you and I live in a very complicated time and we have very complicated lives and, and we have our vision blurred by all uh, sorts of um, spiritual astigmatism and we do not always see a right. This is why we need to trust in the revelation that we're given more than our own intuition. Remember, Christianity is not a religion of your gut instinct. We don't put a lot of stock in gut instinct. Sometimes it's great, but it's always fallen. We trust more in the revelation of the Word of God that is given to us because it has stood the test of time, and we are, not to be too pointed, a little flaky from time to time, right? Um, I, I had a friend who, um, he was going to Thanksgiving with his family. His family's absolutely impossible. And he said, Ethan, I was going to go in there and prove my Christianity to all of these people that were so um, uh, hyper-antagonistic to my faith, and I was going to go in there and be like St. Francis of Assisi on steroids, like the most calm hippie that they've ever seen, and I would instantaneously get into very deep conversations because they, were wonder they would wonder, why did I have this gracious character? But he said, but I got a piece of pork roast stuck between my teeth. And it started to really hurt my gums. And the longer that the evening went on, the more irritated I became. And I was not St. Francis. I was more like Pol Pot, right? So he, he, he changed in his character. So, um, so uh, you know, uh, <laughs> that was his context for the day. And that's what he became. And that was, he wasn't going to reveal anything about God by himself. We need something more than our moods, our dispositions, our intuitions. We need revelation. You need revelation to hold on to, especially when life gives way, which it will. Now, that's something about their context, and that's something about Elijah's context and his ministry and the intrusion of the eternal Word of God. Now, let me speak to you about our context just for a sec, and then I'm done. Now, 
our context, and I'm speaking, I know, in a very narrow, limited way because I'm just assuming that most of us grew up in the United States or post-Vietnam, post-Jim Crow, in the aftermath of the sexual revolution in the midst of terrorism and the tech boom, and, and these things have all shaped, by the way, our perceptions and actions more than we can possibly imagine. Every waking moment is shaped by some aspect of those revolutions that happened amongst us. And friends, there's a lot of toxicity in the air, too much to mention here from the pulpit, but there's all sorts of uh, toxicity that we are breathing in and breathing out every day within our cultural context, from the vicious and systemic forms of racism, to the holocaust of abortion, to the disregard of the environment, to the dehumanizing effects of social media, to the butchery of our children in the name of gender affirmation, to gun violence in schools that, knows no end in, that has no end in sight, to the worship of materialism, to the disregard of systems that keep people poor or drugged, to the removal of God's name from the public sphere, to no-fault divorce. I mean, I can just keep naming things. We, God, in other words, has been replaced by a million savage, graceless deities. We are all affected by this nightmarish context, and I say we deliberately, because what I hear in a lot of Christian pulpits is sort of an uh, it's a nauseating culture warrior uh, kind of diatribe that says, we've got it together, everybody else in the world is an idiot. Um, that is idiocy. Uh, it's outer idiocy. Christians uh, mustn't simply criticize bad culture out there because it strives within us too. Do we think we're completely immune? That would be ridiculous. Uh, we are not neutral observers. We are very often unwitting participants in all sorts of machinations of culture and of evil. Christians very easily fall in love with deceitful, strongman political leaders who promise safety and security for a little of your loyalty. Christians very easily fall in love with the latest cultural developments because we're terrified of being seen as retrograde or uncompassionate. Christians fall in love with syncretism all the time, a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of modern Asherahism, redefining ethics to make the faith a little more palatable. Like Elijah, we breathe within a darkening context, our own empire of nightmares, and we ourselves are infected. But here's the good word for us tonight, one that I hope you cling on to. There was, in fact, a great intrusion. There was a great intrusion. And the ultimate intrusion comes not from Elijah, but his prophetic successor, Jesus, the true prophet, priest, and king. Now, I am not a prophet, but I do come to you tonight proclaiming an invasive word, and Jesus is the invasive, intrusive word made flesh from the Father who invades our nightmarish context, by the way, without our permission, because God, no matter what you've heard before, is not, in fact, a gentleman. He doesn't wait for us to be ready and then to ask. We children of wrath uh, by nature, scream no to God. That's what we do. We shut the door. But he screams the word yes right back at us, and God's yes prevails. So he breaks in. He breaks in without our permission to our closed-off, unwelcoming world, and then into our ear canals, Jesus speaks a kingdom word of truth and grace that has the power to splinter all of the contextual lies and fictions that have entered our skulls from bad politics and bad religion. At his word, Baal and Asherah crumble into Mediterranean sand, and Ahab and Jezebel shut up, wrinkle up, and die. At his word, nightmares within culture lose their potency. This word has indeed invaded, but in Christ, in the word made flesh, not to destroy, 
but to restore. Not to create a drought, but to give life. We know this because the Word made flesh did not, like Elijah, starve the ground from life-giving water and said Jesus was the one who was parched. Remember what he muttered from the cross, I thirst, while he himself nourished the ground with his own redeeming, absolving blood. No context, no matter how powerful, is safe from that sort of invasive love. And that gracious word from the cross speaks to you tonight, and it says you, you, right now, with all of your contextual carnage and compromises and confusion, you are forgiven. Always. And that same word declares that you, by the decree of the world's true king, you belong to a new undying context that cannot be shaken, the everlasting rising kingdom of God. This was Elijah's message really to his people at the time in the midst of such pain and seeming abandonment. And the word was basically, you are not abandoned and you will never ever be abandoned, not for a second. Israel's God, friends, is on the move and the world rightly trembles. And I say, bring on the intrusion. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not.